in the sky Stormy weather Since my man and I Ain't together Keeps raining all of the time Oh yeah Life is bad You're listening to Health Center in the Catskills on WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains. And yeah, stormy weather. Well, we're not having stormy weather this week. Um, hopefully that sun will come out tomorrow. Uh, but uh, stormy weather certainly is on the agenda of our world. The United Nations COP23 meeting clo- uh, 20, for 2023 closed last week after two weeks of contentious discussions about the best way forward to reduce global warming and rein in climate change. Casey Belgard is a public health nurse and design specialist with the Ariadne Labs at um, at a at the uh, Harvard School of Public Health. The labs is a health system innovation center at Harvard. She's completing her doctoral studies at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing and is focusing her work on the relationship between human health and the health of the planet. She's been involved in local, national, and international climate advocacy efforts, including attending that annual COP meeting, the Climate Summit, as a delegate for the past several years, and she co-chairs the American Nurses Association's Innovation Advisory Committee on Planetary and Global Health. I'm delighted to welcome Casey to Health Center in the Catskills. Hi, Casey. Hi, Diana. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, uh, we're talking about this very timely and important topic. Well, I know you're passionate about it, and so I'm delighted that you could do this interview today. So let's start talk by talking about what COP is. Sure. Um, So COP stands for Conference of Parties. And as you said, it refers to the annual United Nations Climate Conference where countries come together to take stock and coordinate global action on climate change. And COP28 was the 28th running of this annual meeting. And I can talk a little bit more about how it works, too, if that would be helpful. Yeah, please do. Please do. So COP is both a process and a gathering, which not many people know. So countries work on different issues related to climate change throughout the year. And then for two weeks out of the year, they come together to measure progress and negotiate what are the best ways to address different aspects of this issue. It's a very big event. So every year it draws tens of thousands of people, heads of state and government who attend the high-level negotiations, but also business leaders, researchers, scientists, activists, folks from civil society, the general public, who are looking to kind of bring their expertise, their concerns, and their solutions to the table at COP as well. 
I want to say that I heard that this year there were 100,000 participants in Abu Dhabi. Is that right? Do you know? Yes. Yes, I've heard that as well. I think that originally they were um, estimating about 70,000, but I think it was quite higher than that. So a lot of people. It draws a lot of, it draws a big crowd. So, so there was a lot of contention in this year's uh, a cop and and one of the one of the I think uh, standout issues was that the uh, some of the people who were leading cop were actually represented representatives of the fossil fuel industry and the cop has still not come out saying we have to put an end to, to fossil fuels um, and and some people felt I think that the fossil fuel industry actually hijacked the the work of the group this year and maybe even in the past so i'm really interested in your impressions on on the the, the i'm sure it, it, i know it's a balancing act in terms of what comes out of these meetings but speak to what you think was accomplished this year and speak to this issue of whether fossil fuels is um going to remain a contentious issue Sure, yeah. I mean, as you highlighted, this COP, in particular COP28, which was hosted by the UAE in Dubai, it has drawn a lot of attention for being um, controversial. Uh, the president of the COP, uh, who is a representative from the host country every year that really oversees the proceedings, actually leads an oil company. Uh, almost 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists attended this COP, which is nearly four times more than ever before, and outnumbered almost every country delegation, which is significant. Wow. And there were certainly more fossil fuel lobbyists there than delegates from countries who are most impacted from climate change. Um, and so when I think about whether COP matters, I do think about the countries most impacted by climate change and what other global forum do they have to get in front of other countries who are the big emitters and demand action. They don't, right? There's no other global forum that exists. And so COP is very imperfect, but it is the space that we have for an issue that's really too important not to engage with, especially for the people in the countries most impacted, you know, for our fellow life on earth and, you know, who don't have a voice and, and for future generations as well. So I'll just say that when I think about whether COP matters, I think, you know, it's important for us to be aware of this being the only global forum to talk about it and then still do our work to um, kind of make the process as transparent and um, and actionable as possible. And I can definitely highlight um, a few of the things that came out of this year's COP as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask you to do that next, but I, I wanted to say that I was just stunned when uh, one of the one of those leaders for with the fossil fuel industry uh, actually claimed that there was no evidence that fossil fuels um, contributes to climate change. It was sort of stunning, uh, and I think it was a huge misstep on that person's part because it showed that um, uh, there there wasn't a lot of truth telling uh, by some of the people who were trying to influence the agenda. So yeah, talk about what you see as the the good points that came out of COP this year. Or so knowing that uh, this is a big process and, and there were many outcomes that came out of it, I'll just highlight a few. Um, the first is related to loss and damage. So one of the major outcomes that people were following was on this topic of loss and damage, which is essentially a fund to support 
vulnerable nations who are already suffering from climate impacts in terms of loss of land, loss of homes through forced displacement, loss of food, livelihoods, you know, culture, even loss of lives. Um, and so after years of wealthy nations really failing to meet their pledges to fill that fund, at this COP, commitments rolled in for the first time, and now the fund totals over $650 million for countries to be able to access um, to really um, almost provide reparations towards the loss and, and damage that they experience and a way to you know, address and, and, and mitigate, um, mitigate the damage or, and mitigate this kind of loss um, that they've experienced. So that was a big outcome. And the second thing uh, is this language around the transition away from fossil fuels. And so after much back and forth, um, the leaders of COP finally included a historic phrase in the kind of final agreement coming out of the conference that calls for the transition away from fossil fuels. So this might seem silly to many that it's like, why wouldn't the agreement have said that already and that it's mm -hmm. taken so long to include language about the very problem that is driving climate change? The hope from many activists was for this to actually say phase out of fossil fuels versus the kind of what some perceive as like the weaker language of transitioning away. Mm. But it's really important to acknowledge that that phrase for transition away from fossil fuels to be included represents years of hard work from activists who are fighting um, for the world to see this addiction um, to fossil fuels that we have that's making us and our planet sick. Um, and so now this language can be used at future COPs to really hold the world's nations accountable to do just what they said, right? To transition away from fossil fuels as soon as possible. And then the third thing I'll name um, was a climate and health declaration. So health was included on the agenda at COP28 for the first time ever. Wow. Nearly 130 countries signed on to a historic declaration on climate and health which really sounded the alarm of climate change's impact on health. And it called for deep, rapid reductions in fossil fuels, for countries' national plans to really protect their um, public's health from climate impacts, improve health systems' ability to respond to climate change. Um, so really just kind of growing recognition of the interconnection of our health with the health of the planet. You know, I want to I, I want to comment before we I want I want to talk more about uh, the impact on health. But before I do, I want to speak to the issue of the language of transitioning away from fossil fuels. The reality is that there are countries whose economy is totally dependent upon fossil fuels. So for those countries, um, it's not so easy for them to say we're just going to stop producing fossil fuels. I'm hoping that they will see that they need to have a plan for doing that, for getting away from fossil fuels. But uh, the political realities here, I think, are, are, are pretty um, commanding. Uh, so I don't know if you agree with that or not. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that's an important kind of nuance to this conversation is that uh, each nation's 
kind of quote-unquote responsibility to take action here is not the same. Every country is at different levels of emissions and different levels of of development um, and have different capacities. And so we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to what this transition looks like. I think the hope is just that the future includes us trying to um, us trying to move away from fossil fuels as much as possible, especially those countries that are very over-reliant on it and have the capacity to move away. So let's talk a little bit more about the impact of climate change on health. I, I, some things seem pretty obvious in terms of when you have uh, more tornadoes, when you have more flooding, when you have, um, you know, uh, I'm thinking of the heat and an interview that I recently did with uh, Dr. Roxana Chikas, a nurse at Emory University who's looking at how to protect farm workers from the impact of climate change and the increase in heat. Uh, So to me, those are some of the more obvious ones. But what are some of the ones that people might not be thinking about? Sure. Uh, well, so as a nurse, this is really an important topic to yeah. me. Um, the science is clear that climate change negatively impacts our health in many ways. As regions of the world get hotter and drier, people are experiencing higher rates of heart attacks, mm-hmm. strokes, asthma attacks, kidney disease. Um, during heat waves, people are more likely to be seen in the ER for these issues, which I think many people don't, they're not aware of. Um, mental health is another important one. Things like stress and anxiety are definitely linked to climate change for things like extreme weather events or wildfires, which really disrupt our lives. Um, but also people with psychiatric illnesses are often more vulnerable in higher temperatures. Taking certain medications um, also are um, uh, can increase health risks in, in high temperatures. And as you said, you know, extreme weather causes injuries, drownings. People can experience food or waterborne illness from contamination of those kinds of sources that happen during or after a storm. We're also seeing changing patterns of things like pollen and vector-borne diseases, which means things like more allergies, higher rates of mosquito bites and tick-borne illnesses um, in areas that they haven't been seen before. Um, and these health impacts are not felt equally. Groups like pregnant people, like children, the elderly, you mentioned outdoor workers, um, the poor, black, brown, and indigenous communities, they really all disproportionately bear the burden of climate change on their health. Research has shown that a child born today will be impacted by climate change at every single stage of life. And that risk is really compounded when that child is, say, born on a on a small island nation or in a global south country and that's really deeply unfair right so health and justice are really an essential part of the conversation about climate change well and in fact uh, i i remember last year there was a lot of discussion about how the 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 lower resource countries really are bearing uh, a disproportionate brunt of the impact of climate change. And I think they were pretty vocal this year, too. And I think there was concern that the report didn't go far enough to protect those countries. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I, and again, I think that's why, you know, it's important to name that COP is very imperfect, um, but that it is the space where countries like small island nations continually show up to fight for their people, to fight for their culture and their language, their identity and livelihoods, which is really so wrapped up in 
the decisions that we make or or don't make right on climate action those are really deeply interconnected so Casey, um, bef- I want to talk about what people can do uh, in terms of meaningfully do to support um, societal changes to reduce global warming. But I want I, I want to ask you first: How do you become a delegate to the COP? Oh, what a good question! Uh, so the COP process, which is managed by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. There is a formal process through which organizations can affiliate um, with the UNFCCC. So it, it's not a situation where someone could just say, "I'm interested. I'm going to show up <laughs> and see if they let me if they let me in." Um, it is something that you know an organization has to formally affiliate. They apply. They their application gets reviewed and approved. Um, and so certainly, folks like. Like students, um, perhaps your university has um, an affiliation. That's how I became a delegate, um, that my university has a relationship with the UNFCCC. A lot of advocacy and activist organizations um, have affiliations to really make their voice heard. Um, so I think it's, it's about kind of knowing where your circles of influence are and doing a little bit of digging to find um, is there, you know, is there a relationship that you could tap into to become a delegate if this is something that you're really passionate about and wanting to learn more about and, and kind of raise your voice and concerns around this issue. Great. Well, um, in the few minutes we have left, let's talk about what can people do to meaningfully support the societal changes we need to make? There's so many things that people can do to help heal the climate and really build a healthier future for all of us. And so if, I, if you think about kind of, again, different different spheres of influence, when you're at home, you could bike more than you drive. You could get solar panels, right? You can Commit to buying as local as possible. Save out plastic in the house. Conserve your water, right? You can get engaged in your local community by advocating for clean energy, green buildings, composting, right? You can get involved civically and volunteer to help elect local, state, national leaders who really care about and will take action on climate change. And you can call your representatives to let them know how important a healthy climate is to you and your children and your future. I'll say, too, that all of our jobs are climate jobs. So whether that is reducing waste at work, being more conscious of your kind of workplace purchases, being more energy efficient at your office, starting a recycling or a composting program, you could even move your retirement investments into climate friendly funds, which is a big one. Uh, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, who's a marine biologist and climate activist um, based in New York, actually, talks about the climate Venn diagram. So you draw three circles and you ask yourself, what am I good at? What's the work that needs doing and what brings me joy? And you find the heart of that diagram and just really try to spend as much time there at the overlap as possible. So I think those are some places for, for folks to get started. That's that, that, Those are some really good suggestions. And just um, uh, 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 your thoughts on 
the healthcare industry and how the healthcare industry itself uh, is contributing to global warming and what, what we can do to call upon our healthcare systems to be more mindful about how they're doing business. Yeah, the health sector is definitely starting to wake up to the idea that they are unfortunately part of the problem, um, that healthcare systems are big emitters, especially in the U.S. Um, globally, the health sector contributes to about 5% of um, greenhouse gas emissions, and that's higher in the U.S. It's closer to 8 to 10%. Um, and so there's a lot of movement at different levels right now for the health sector to do what's called decarbonization, which means ways to kind of get carbon out of the way that we deliver care. And so for people in their local communities, um, it's great to raise that question when you go to the doctor's office. Um, what are you doing about um, reducing your carbon footprint in our community? Um, what are the ways that you're taking action to try to conserve energy, be more energy efficient, to build kind of clean green energy more into the way that you power your healthcare buildings? Um, asking those kinds of questions, I think there's pressure from different spaces for healthcare to really kind of get involved in this work. Um, but um, that pressure and that influence from um, our constituents, the people that we serve, meaning our patients and our communities, is really important to let that your to let your healthcare system know that you do care about this and you're wondering what action that they're taking on it because it matters to you and it matters to your health and matters it influences your decision around where you seek care, right? I think that's a really compelling way to kind of be a part of this work and to help move it forward. Casey Belgard, um, it's public health nurse and design specialist with Ariadne Labs at Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you so much for your great work on climate change on behalf of all of us, as well as for coming on to Health Center in the Catskills today and talking about this. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Diana, and, and thanks for your advocacy around um, really elevating this important issue. Um, great to join you, and, and thanks so much again. Right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah, she's she's really a gem, and uh, I've had some pleasure uh, the pleasure to work with her in a, a program that I direct for the International Council of Nurses, and she's a standout. Well, um, I want to uh, just remind listeners that... Um, uh, you can listen to the segments that uh, of of these these interviews on Health Cetera by going to healthmediapolicy.com. That's healthmediapolicy.com. We try to post uh, almost all of the segments there. Uh, I usually um, I don't get them posted until uh, a week or two afterward, but uh, you can find most of the programs there at healthmediapolicy.com. On WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains.
WIOX is supported by you and the following community underwriters. The American Forest Foundation, designed to support sustainable forest management, improved wildlife habitat, a healthy environment, the harvest of high-quality timber, and increased carbon storage through the